If you like the show, share it with a friend. You can find us at facebook.com slash show, and you can see us on the web at www.tracktuned.com. And be sure to leave us reviews and ratings on iTunes. Slip Angle Show. I'm Austin Cabot, and I am here live right now in Palisade, Colorado, at you guessed it, Fly Miata. And I'm here with Keith Tanner. How's it going, Keith? It's going pretty well. Yourself? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It was a little bit of a uh, a longer drive than I thought from uh, from Colorado Springs, but it was a gorgeous drive. The, mount- guys- the mountains are good for that. Yeah, it takes a long time to get through them, but man, it's worth it. Yeah, that uh, that stretch that I was telling you about earlier, I seventy through Glenwood. Is it Glenwood Springs and Glenwood Gl- Canyon? Glenwood Canyon. Yeah, it's yeah, gorgeous, it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. And what, maybe not even an hour from here. It's just about an hour. Exactly. I'm super jealous that you guys have that so close <laughs> by, and you know, right out, right out your backyard is just some gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. So we got some good pictures earlier that I'll be putting up on the site, and it's just gorgeous out here. I'm super jealous. You get to play with Miatas all the time. You get to live in a beautiful spot. That's uh, the big road too. That's the, you didn't get you didn't get to see our, uh, the our secret ones. Yeah, yeah. Even, little test even roads all the around orchards here. and stuff around here too. Like you got some nice little ninety degree corners everywhere. So got a few of those. Yeah. One thing I was kind of confused about though is like turn on thirty eight road and then thirty seven and a quarter and then a quarter. I don't I don't understand the naming structure. That's the but. distance to the county line. Oh, okay. So you know thirty eight road is thirty eight miles from the county line. Okay. On, and it runs north south. Okay. And then there's A B C D E roads that go east west. Oh, so it's all just laid out. It's, in a, grid. it's a grid. Yeah. It's, okay. it's not really a grid because there's geography, but that's the idea. <laughs> so you have all these straight roads around, which are great for Miatas, right? Mm-hmm. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but you also have some beautiful roads too. So really appreciate you having me in. Uh, we got to take a shop tour earlier. This place is absolutely amazing. There's tons and tons of inventory here, tons of awesome cars. Uh, if you can make it by here and they'll have you, I highly suggest stopping by. Uh, it's worth it just for the scenery. I mean, they have awesome stuff here, but it's uh, it's totally worth coming by. Um, so, Keith, give me a little bit of, of background uh, You know, with, with how you came to work for Fly Miata. Um, when, how long have you been working for them? I used to work in the uh, in the computer industry, doing okay. multimedia work, and uh, Flying Miata, which was called the Deal Alternative at the time, had a logo contest, hmm. and I put together one of the first entries, complete with usage, you know, and here's how to work in a business card and stuff like that. And uh, I didn't win the contest because I wasn't the fir- I was the first guy to put in a, a proposal, so mine was old by the contest. But I I got approached by Bill to do the advertising after that. Okay, and so I did their advertising remotely for years. And then when the bottom fell out of high tech, um, back in 1999 or 2000, I was at loose ends, and Bill mentioned that they needed a new a new tech here at Flying Miata. So I packed up, moved to Colorado, and I've been stuck here ever since. It's not a bad place to be. It's all right. Yeah, it's, you can get used to it pretty quickly. Yeah. So were you were you into Miatas before um, you came to work here, or was it just kind of something that you you knew about Flying Miata and knew that they were looking for logo stuff? And no, I definitely knew the company. Okay. Um, I got my first Miata in 1993. Oh wow! And uh, I was a customer of Flying Miatas or dealer alternatives. And I was very active on the uh, on the mailing list. Before we had messing boards to play with, we had a mailing list. And uh, and Bill was quite active there. I was quite active there. And so we knew each other through that. Okay. Awesome. So really, um, what made you buy your, your first Miata? I know you said it was a, you bought it in 93. 
Yep. Um, what what kind of sold you on the car? I mean, I know a lot of people have their own Miata story, but uh, what's what's yours specifically? Oh, I remember in the late '80s, just reading car magazines and thinking it, there was there was a sort of horsepower war going on at the time. Not not like we see today, but still, you know, best we could do in the late '80s. Um, and I kept on thinking, why do they keep making the cars more powerful? Because then they have to make them heavier and and your power to weight ratio goes down. So why doesn't somebody come up with a small, lightweight car? I was a big Lotus fan at the time. Okay. And then one day I opened up a copy of Road and Track, and there's the Miata sitting there looking at me. It was perfect. And um, it was just exactly the sort of thing I was looking for, you know, affordable, fun, lightweight, cheap. And uh, so a few years later, I bought one as my first car, and I still own it. Okay. Oh, is that the blue one? No, my daily driver. That's that's another one that's come along since then. But okay. my my original uh, my original 1990 is is parked back at my house. Okay. How many miles are on that one now? Well, it's Canadian, so it's got kilometers. Okay. Uh, not that many, actually. Um, I think it's somewhere 100, 180 thousand kilometers, which is okay. like 112 thousand miles. Not yeah. that much, really. Okay. Awesome. So it's uh, I mean, it's a really interesting story that you've had that for that long, though. It's um, come and gone. It's one of those cars that I had. I traded it to a friend for a classic Mini. Oh, yeah? Uh, it was hi- fairly highly modified at the time, both cars, uh, but the Miata was, and the friend was having trouble getting keeping it maintained, and eventually it came back to me after a few years. So I've I've owned it since 1993, but just not continuously. Okay. So it's one of those boomerang cars, man. Like, exactly. It just, just keeps it coming back to me. It, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, is that car, I, I guess you said that car is modified? Um, is it still modified, or did you take it back to stock? It's, it's still modified. Um I don't know what exactly I'm going to do with it in the future because okay. right now I've got enough other road registered Miatas. It's not yeah. like I need another one. But uh, when it came back to me from Canada, I fixed its uh, its problems at the time. It's still modified the way it was. I may change some things about it. I've got some ideas. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of people that I know that, uh, you know, I feel like Miatas are, are kind of kind of like Pringles. You know, you can't eat just one. <laughs> you know, it's just... Everybody that I know that has a Miata, they're either planning on buying another one or, you know, they have a couple of them. And they, they tend to multiply a little bit, too. Well, it's not completely my fault. I'm in the business, right? Yeah. Um, the, the daily driver that I have now was a car that actually my girlfriend at the time bought. Okay. And when I married her, well, it kind of, you know, became part of the family. So that's how that one joined us. Okay. And then there's the race car. You know, they, they've, all got, they've all got a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's it's funny because I, I owned a Miata and then I bought another Miata and then I was planning on buying another one at the time. And I kept trying to figure out, you know, or I kept finding reasons to be able to buy another one because they're, <laughs> at least for the, the NAs, you know, they're just inexpensive enough that you can always fathom buying another one. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, $1,500, $2,000, I can make it work. I need an ice racing car, you know, or something <laughs> something stupid like that. So it's, uh, I just, I, it's really funny with those cars. So I don't know if it's the same same way for you, or I'm sure you have some customers where they just kind of multiply. But we've a lot of our customers have more than one. We have records on, on our customers, you know, what kind of car they've got because it yeah. makes it easier if they order something. We know that's that's for the right year, that's for their car, and so we have a pretty good idea who's got multiple cars. And there's quite a few that have okay. got multiples. What's the uh, what's the highest number of Miatas that one person owns that you know of? Oh, there was a collector in uh, where was it New York? I think at 52 or something. Oh like that. wow. It's like think, one for every day of the of, or every week of the year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they were all drivers. I think they were, you know, special editions and that kind of thing. Okay. I never saw it. You know, I've never never proven that that story. But uh, yeah, there, there's out there. I I tend to have more wide ranging interest than just Miatas. Oh yeah. I've got about a dozen cars, and and yeah, three of them are Miatas, but okay, most of them aren't. Yeah. Well, do you uh, what what other types of cars are you into? 
I've got an old 1966 Cadillac. Okay. Um, because well, it's cool. Yeah. Um, I've got an old Land Rover as well because again it's cool. I dragged that one out of a barn where it oh, been really? for ten years and restored it. What What year is it? Uh, that one's a sixty. What year is it? Oh, 67. so when you say old, you mean old? It's a real Land Rover. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Basically a tractor with headlights. Yeah, the right? ones where the left fenders don't quite might quite match the right fenders. You know, they're all they're all kind of like well, over the years little. they got they got kind of pushed out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a. Uh, I've got an MGB GT that I put an LS1 in. Oh wow! I bet that's fun. That one's pretty entertaining. Yeah, yeah it's quite quite entertaining because it's it's a tiny little compact thing and it's all anger and noise and flames, <laughs> usually in the right place. Um, what else is there? There's the uh, an E39 M5. Oh, just those. That's that is probably that and the E46 M3 to me are like just the classic looking classic looking BMWs. That's a gorgeous car. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it because it's. It's one of those cars where the engineers got to do whatever they wanted to. Yeah. You get that feel when you're driving it that there weren't any constraints. It's like, okay, you guys just go and you can have your car. You can make this one. Yeah. And uh, and there's so much stuff. It's it's a little bit of a princess. You know, it's a four-door supercar, and you've got to take care of it. It requires some good maintenance, but uh, yeah, and I know, man, it, I know they have their, their issues too, but um, you know, those. I just think those cars are awesome. Yeah, I'm not going to argue about that one. Yeah. So there was actually at SEMA, there was somebody that uh, was driving a silver wagon, that looked like it, it had all the M5 Aero on it. Uh, I don't know if it had the M5 motor in it as well. But there's been a couple of guys who've done complete swaps. Yeah, there was wiring a guy, harness and everything. There was a guy in Atlanta that actually he was a BMW tech. It was like dark, dark blue, that BMW blue. That's uh, terrifying to see when you see that entire wiring harness laid out. Oh my yeah. god, it's got something like sixty or seventy fuses in one oh, fuse box. Geez. It's just massive. Man, you know one thing though that I was always impressed with. I know we're here at a Miata shop talking about BMWs, but. Uh, one of my friends in Chicago used to part out E46 M3s, mm-hmm. uh, and I would go and help him, you know, pull everything apart, kill them. Yeah, and just but just looking at all the the hardware and everything, just all of it zinc plated, it just it really made me kind of appreciate, I guess, how much BMWs cost. Um, I felt like they were actually good value when you start pulling them apart, part by part. Uh, they seemed like. You know, the value is definitely there. Cause they're the certainly complicated enough to justify yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So there's, I mean, there's just countless R&D. But anyway, back to Miatas. Uh, or back to your cars. Uh, what else What else do you have? Oh, let's see. There's there's a home-built low-cost, a Lotus 7 replica. There's okay. A, there's a classic Mini. Uh, is it the same Mini that you uh, you traded it is. the Miata for? It is, oh, yeah. So- I, traded, I traded the Mini for the Miata, and then the Miata came home and the Mini didn't leave. Okay. Um, I've probably forgotten something. I know I forgot. Oh, there's a there's a uh, Volkswagen Westfalia. Oh, really? Yeah, one of the Vanigans with yeah. that Subaru engine in it. Yeah. I mean, oh, really? That gets taken for for camping trips. That's pretty cool. And uh, and then just daily driver stuff, boring. You know, big pickup truck to tow the tow the race trailer around. Yeah. Well, I'm from Georgia. I mean, that's the standard. That's not boring. That's... Yeah. This is four wheel drive though. Oh, there it's you go. Not one of those wussy little Georgia two wheel drive. <laughs> yeah. <trucks. laughs> it's a real truck. <laughs> Actually, uh, down in South Georgia, you know, the big jacked up trucks are they're just redneck Cadillacs. Is is all mm-hmm. it really is. So it's uh, it's pretty funny, but anyways, um, you know I know that you have a, a fair amount of of driving experience too. Uh, but we were talking earlier about when you got your start doing you know doing track day stuff and stuff like that. Uh, you want to take us back to to what year uh, that was and and what track? I know you were saying you were at the the Nurburgring uh, for your yeah, first ever like, my first first ever lap like, was bucket, the Nurburgring bucket list track for everybody. And this guy just starts off like right off the bat like bo- oh yeah in a we'll just do Miata that. yeah. Well, I, I, I'm Canadian, so I grew up growing in, I grew up driving in the snow, so I spent a lot of time going sideways around parking lots of my parents' car, which is they know about that thank goodness yeah. Um, 
and then started autocrossing in 1993. Okay. And did that sort of casually for a while. And then... Was that with when, when you got your Miata that you started Yeah, coincidentally. Okay. Yeah. Shortly yeah. after I got that, I, I literally just came across an autocross and it was taking place at a shopping center and said, it just looks like fun. Yeah. And uh, took it out there and set the fastest time of the day. Cause, oh, wow. Because well, Miatas, you know, they're just... Yeah. They're good at that. So, uh, yeah, I got started on that. And, yeah, first track day, that was... Little about 2001 or so. Okay. Um, Let's go back to that, that autocross, though. Your first autocross, <laughs> putting an FTD. What did everybody else think? Well, you got to like? remember that we're not talking like a Southern California autocross here. It okay. wasn't one of those ones where everyone's, everyone's got these ultra-prepped cars and, and the driving level is high. We're talking about London, Ontario here. So okay. it was like probably a half dozen to a dozen guys screwing around in a, in a parking lot with some cones. You know? Okay. It's just as much fun, but it's not quite as formal. You know, yeah. SCCA rule book was definitely not in effect. So everyone was like, "Who's this dang guy in this dang Mazda?" No, it was kind of fun, you know. It's, it, autocrossers are like that. It's everyone's everyone's always started at some point, yeah, and they're always welcoming. So even if you come in and you've got a new cool car, you know, because there weren't any other Miatas there, that tells you how small a group it was. Imagine an autocross with only one Miata. Yeah, it, imagine that. I'm sure you remember it very vividly, though. Like, what cars were there that you beat? You know what I remember is it was in this parking lot, and the shopping mall was open. Really, and there wasn't so, like, a whole were, like, lot of walking by. There wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of runoff room. <laughs> if you screwed up, you were probably going to collect somebody else's metal. And there were guys wandering around. You had to keep a close eye on the course. So yeah, that that was the memorable part. It was perhaps not as controlled as perhaps yeah. as, uh, some, as it could some have woman's been. like I was just trying to go to pay less, and my car got hit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was a little sketchy, maybe, but it was fun. Got me started. Yeah. Everyone was having a good time. Awesome. So. And then, sorry, I cut you off earlier, but yeah, you're sure. talking about your your first track day. First track day was at Thunderhill um, with my friend Rick Weldon. He, okay. uh, he had a car that countless people have had their first track days in. Yeah, he's actually he's been on the show before, and I think he actually uh, had mentioned that, that uh, your first track day, official track day, official. Was, in, was in his car. Yeah, did he mention I, I punted it off turn nine? At the no, end of the day? I don't think he did. Yeah, I took him for a little ride. <laughs> Turns out you can take turn nine flat in that car. About three out of four times. So <laughs> when he did the fourth, that didn't quite work. Yeah. You know, I've had, uh, I've had a, a couple instances when I was coming up through the ranks where it was like, yeah, I know I can take that flat. But if you're like a, you know, a half car length too far over, uh, you know, to the left or to the right, you can't take it flat. You know, I, I, I generally don't go off the track. It's yeah. something I avoid doing because I have to buy too much of my own stuff. And, uh, and very rarely do you win by crashing. Yeah. Um, so that was an exception to the rule, especially with someone else's car. But, uh, but yeah, no harm done. A little bit of you know, cosmetic damage to the wheels, but that was about it. And Rick was, Rick was laughing the whole time, and he invited me to drive it again next time I was at a track. So I guess that worked out. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, what a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, been, I've driven some other, other people's cars, too, and... Uh, Luckily, I haven't had any offs, but that sounds like it was a pretty, pretty light off. It, it, turn nine is it's nine. Yeah, I've never, so I've never been to Thunder Hill. So it might be eight. It's it's a it's a fast. It might have a different number now with the okay. with rework. Yeah, with the new, yeah. It, it's a fast uphill left, um, and yeah, I just kind of, I just went too fast. Okay, that's all it was. Just, we that's just usually a bit, that's usually just what a little happens. bit too quick. Yeah, awesome. So Six, seven, I think it was eight. Yeah, it would be turn eight. Okay. So you did your first track day in that car, and then at the time you were working here already, right? I was, was yeah, that's why I timeline? was in the states, okay. um, and I was actually working for Flying Me Out as a race mechanic, amongst other things. Okay. Uh, we had our own our own race car, and Rick was the, the driver, which is how I knew him. Oh, really? What uh, uh, what what class or what series were you guys running? That was uh, it was a car built for the Open Track Challenge. Okay. Oh, which, that's the, the wide body one. The, we the wide body, about, yeah. Right? If, okay. it, if it was around today, it would be called Time Attack, but at the time right. it wasn't called Time Attack because there was no Time Attack. Um, but yeah, it was basically it was a series of track days, uh, time track days, and you and you went from one track to another over the course of a week. So it was kind of an endurance event too. 
And uh, it was a full-on track day at each one, so you got a lot of track time in. And I did a lot of wrenching because I wasn't driving, but I was making sure the car was healthy. Right. Um, so, yeah, we were – I've lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? <laughs> anyway, that's the, the open track challenge. It was, it was started up by a bunch of Southern California guys who okay. were running track days together. And, of course, they all wanted to win the track day. Yeah. And so someone formalized that. It only lasted, I think, three years. Okay. Well, it, was a, it was a fun uh, – It was just like one, one week a year that you guys would do it? Or? What, yeah, it was one week a year. So we'd do some R&D at, at various other tracks. We'd go out to, at to Spring Mountain in okay. Pahrump, uh, do some testing out there. We'd do some testing locally. Um, get the car set up and then take it out. And what really, what really sort of killed it for us was the fact that we were coming up with all sorts of great ideas and and really pushing the boundaries of what we could do, which was kind of the point for us. Yeah. But didn't have enough access to track time to really sort it out. And so we were showing up with a car that was not as. We didn't have the time or the opportunity to to completely sort it out. So there was some experimental stuff on it that did or didn't work sometimes. Okay. But that car had all sorts of arrow on it. Um, yeah, it had stuff that that's starting to become common now in yeah. in Miata Track Day stuff. Uh, but this is what, like, fifteen years later. This this yeah, this was two thousand two, two thousand three. Yeah, you know, we had vented rear windows. We had uh, multiple positions for the wing, taking advantage of some ground effect stuff. It had big splitters on it. Yeah, vented hoods. You know, knackered ducks feeding oil like coolers. Everybody and, did back then. No, 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 no neons. neon. I have to admit, though, one time we did a turbo install on a car that had underbody neon, and I had to. <laughs> I had to put the neon back on after the install. Oh, I was yeah. carefully installing this this yellow neon tube right in front of the intercooler so it would glow at night, and it, I just I felt a little bit dirty. Yeah, my buddy Adam and I have uh, that hosts a podcast with me, who unfortunately wasn't able to make it with us today. Um, we've talked about building a, a Civic and just doing like a n- ugly, ugly body kit, and you know, do some like neons, do everything that was like period correct in like early two thousands. Um, you know, just maybe even like a plexiglass hood. You know, where it's clear. And Get yourself some Max Power magazines. Yeah, and see what you perfect. can copy out of Max Power. Oh, I remember Max Power. <laughs> Getting Max Power from, from England. Uh, so my parents listen to the show, but I'll go ahead and say it. I used to buy that magazine because, uh, you know, at 12, you could buy it, 12, 13, and there were topless <laughs> women in it. So you're like, sweet, I can Little buy this Little tiny car pictures magazine. of topless women, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can buy this car magazine and my parents don't know. So, but yeah, I remember the, the days of Max Power and Ali G, who is still around. And Yes. Yeah. And is, you know, actually doing some really funny stuff. So, but, okay. So, going back to Miatas, instead of Max Power magazines, <laughs> um, what, you know, I guess you guys here at, at Flying Miata have been working on Miatas for, for quite a while. Uh, when did the company actually get started? Uh, Flying Miata started off actually as the dealer alternative, as I mentioned earlier, um, doing Porsche, Audi, Volkswagen work. Really? Back in 1983 in New Jersey. Okay. Um, and one of the... Back in 89, one of Bill's, Bill Cardell, the owner, was the one who started it. Uh, one of his customers showed up uh, with a Miata, and a Viper customer basically threw him the keys to the Miata, said, here, you got to try this thing. Huh. And Bill had one very shortly afterwards. Um, at 1,800 miles, he turbocharged it, and he was the only with a crudest turbocharger kit you've ever heard of. Was that like a header that he pieced together himself? No, he didn't. He bought it or? from somebody. Okay. And it had, the, for the fuel system, it had this this switch so that whenever it went into boost, it would block off the return line to the fuel pressure regulator. So it would go from standard fuel pressure to as much as the fuel pump could possibly handle as a switch. And the whole car would fall down its face. And yeah, it just terrible, terrible thing. And he was the only <laughs> one that could install it and actually make it work. Oh, really? And uh, so the manufacturer basically started sending everyone to him. Okay. And... Then he started getting more and more modified Miatas, and in 1996, he basically he uh, he sold the repair shop off to one of his employees, um, and essentially spun the Miata business off on its own, and that's where we are now. Okay, awesome. That's when he moved up to Colorado as well from New Jersey. Okay, 
Yeah, it's not a like I said, it's not a bad place to be. So, have you guys been in this location since you you started and just built a bigger building? Or we started uh, when Bill started off. It was just him, and he worked out of his basement. Okay, you know, shipping parts out of the out of downstairs, and he built a big garage. The idea was to work out of the garage, but he outgrew that before he was done. They got a little storefront, you know, sort of like a right beside a Domino's Pizza or something like that. Lasted there for a year. Bought a six thousand square foot building uh, with another six thousand square foot building beside it. So when I first came to join Fly Miata, we were in the 6,000-square-foot uh, place. We took over the second 6,000-square-foot building, so we had a total of 12,000 for a while. Uh, and then uh, about five years ago, I think, we moved up here. We got 25,000 square feet. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this shop is uh, is rather large. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of space here, but there's also a lot of inventory. You know, the business seems to definitely be able to support all the space, so you guys need it. Yeah, you know how it is. You, you use as much space as you have, but of course, yeah, we've got... We've got uh, hundreds and hundreds of you know, wheels and turbochargers and yeah. superchargers and everything on the shelf. And, so. and Miata tubs sitting on top of pallet racks. Miata and BMW 2002 sitting up there. Yeah, there's a there's an airplane on top of the dyno. You oh, know? really? <laughs> there is. Oh, I didn't see that. Earlier. That's right. Bill was Bill was talking about it. Yeah, you don't you don't know what's there, but yeah, yeah there's there's stuff stashed all over the place. <laughs> That's just great. So, let's see. So you guys are, are mainly known for you know essentially adding more power to Miatas. Uh, with turbochargers and motor swaps and things like that. But you also do a lot of different suspension stuff as well. Um, you know, what's uh, what's one of, like, the, the big sellers for you guys? I know you used to do uh, stuff with a certain suspension manufacturer, but you're doing stuff with Fox now, mm -hmm. um, kind of as your, your high-end um, shocks that you guys deal with. Um, you know, how, how have those been working out for you guys? It's been interesting watching the market. Uh, it's very definitely changed. You know, we do stuff. We we've got a wide range of demographics. You can imagine we've got guys who can you can afford a thousand dollar Miata off Craigslist, and and they're putting together for the track. You know, but on a fairly small budget. And we've got guys who are buying brand new 2016s, right. know, and they've got some disposable income they want to throw at this thing. So there's, a, and we've got the guys who are coming to us with the V8 cars. You know, fifty thousand, sixty thousand dollar cars. We built one that was ninety thousand dollars. Wow. Uh, so it's it's been we've got this huge demographic range to deal with, and we've seen over the years that that the market's been moving up. As the prices of the cars go down, um, you know, when I first started in 2001, the idea of a $2,000 suspension for Miata, I don't think anyone would have gone for it. Yeah. Maybe three or four guys in the world were interested in that stuff. And now, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of choices. Now, you've talked to Emilio, obviously, so right. you know, the, the Zetas and things like that. Um, we've got our, our Fox suspension sitting right in that range now. Um, and people are going for it. You know, the, the Fox for the NA and the NB has been a really good seller even before we actually had any uh, any inventory in in stock, right? Um, it's going really well. So it's yeah, we we see by the numbers we're actually more of a suspension company than we are a, a, a power company. Okay. Um, people associate us with the power because that's where the right. headline stuff is, right? Right. But, but we sell a lot of suspension stuff. The V Max line that we carry is really really popular for us because it's it's you know the best six or seven hundred dollar six or seven hundred dollar suspension you can buy. You know it's 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 got a bit of a pedigree. It's not the best suspension you can buy, but the best one you can get for the money. So right. it does well for us. And the high-end stuff, yeah, we have a lot of fun developing that. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, torture testing it on on, uh, on the various race platforms as well as on the street. And, yeah. And the market's still asking for it. Yeah. You know, it was really interesting. It, it Miata's at Mazda Raceway. Uh, thanks, Rick. Uh, not Miata's at the racetrack name, or the shortened racetrack name. Um, you guys had, you know, it was one of the first times that I'd seen Fox suspension on a, you know, on a normal car. You know, I knew Fox did a lot of you know truck stuff, um, but I hadn't really seen anything in the sports car market. Um, you know, how how did you guys go about approaching them? You know, to kind of 
do something like that. I hadn't really ever seen any coilovers for any of the cars that I like to to pay attention to. You know, it's kind of kind of out of left field when I saw it. You'd think so, but if you look back into it, Fox actually won Indy in 1983. Yeah, well, and almost every car on the field was was running right. Fox suspension. You know, yeah, they, I know from the, from the race standpoint, I know that they were doing stuff. But as mm-hmm. far as you know, street cars, I guess um, I hadn't really seen too much. It's a new market for them in some ways, although. Ride Tech, who you probably know from the yeah. pro touring, those are Fox shocks. Oh, really? Yeah, and if you ever have a look at a Ride Tech's Ride Tech uh, shock, there's a mm-hmm. Fox sticker on it. Oh, know, they really? don't, okay. they don't, they don't hide it at all. You know, it's very much that is right. that is who does it for them. Okay. Um, they've got some great knowledge in house. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the guys who worked with worked at uh, works as a competition director at Bilstein for something like eleven or twelve years. Yeah, I remember you saying and that. He earlier. knows his stuff. He's yeah. fantastic to work with. Um, so they actually approached us. Okay. They were looking to get into uh, into more of the the track market, I guess you know the the uh, the performance car market, and figured the Miata was a good place to do it. And if they were going to do a Miata, well, then they came to us. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a good fit. It's it's been really good to work with them um, because they understand some of the same stuff that we do uh, from dealing with the Targa Newfoundland cars and the other suspension development. I firmly believe that travel you, you got to have travel you got to yeah. let the suspension move and give it room to work and the fox guys totally understand that you know they they believe as well again travel 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 um once you've got that then you can start working on the actual suspension but first you got to give it room yeah um so that's been really good to work with them on and because they do all this this hardcore off-road stuff and they do production shocks for cars like the raptor um they know how to make stuff last right and that's always that's nice too if you go to their factory um they actually have if you go into the R&D section, they have jars of calibrated dirt. Really? So you can take dirt X or whatever with such and such a grain size and pack it in around the seal and then put the shock on the shock torture device and just ram it up and down, run the Baja 1000 simulation really? on it, and then see how the, how the seal's held up. Wow. So someone's job is to actually go around and collect dirt from different places for people. I, I'm assuming there's a certain amount of sifting involved. You yeah. know, I, I don't imagine he's actually, okay, well, now I've got to go to the Mojave yeah. and pick up the dirt from mile 12. <laughs> but... Uh, but yeah, they they they've got the most incredible R and D section. They're a huge company. You don't yeah. realize it, but they're something like a yeah, quarter of a billion dollars yeah, a year. Tons of divisions. I mean, all the way from mountain bikes, all the way mountain to bikes. You know, that's, off-road that's trucks. Mountain yeah. bikes is huge for them. I know. But yeah, off-road trucks, and you know, if you want to go fast on dirt, you'll talk to them. And yeah. uh, if you want to go fast with a with a big American sedan, you'll talk to them because of Ride Tech. And now, if you want to go fast with the Miata, well, hopefully you'll talk to us. Yeah. So now going, uh, switching gears a little bit, I know you were talking about the Targa Newfoundland mm-hmm. a little. Uh, you've run that a couple times before, have you not? I've, I've run it twice, and yeah. I almost got a chance to run it this year as well. Okay. Uh, you want to talk to us a little bit about that? You know, what, what kind of put that idea to run originally in your head? You know, because I think there's a lot of people out there that, you know, know about the race, but think that it's really far-fetched that they'd be able to run. Uh, and as we were talking earlier off air, it's actually really not, you were telling me, it's not that difficult to get in. You don't need a fully prepped race car to run in, in the lower class. Yeah, there's there's two basic classics for classes for it. One is the full-on rally class, the target class, or division. Uh, and the other one is the uh, the Grand Touring Division, which is essentially a time-speed distance run. Okay. And so for that, you just need basically streetcar levels of prep. Um, you know, they want you to wear a helmet and a fire suit, uh, and you have to have a fire extinguisher and triangles and things like that on board. But generally speaking, you can, and people have, done it, do it in a rental car. Okay. Um, so it's it's a different kind of competition. Uh, it re- requires a lot of precision. I have never run that class myself, but our sister car in 2011 ran in that class. Okay. And, uh, and yeah, the poor navigator is... <laughs> Just what burned out his brain, I think, trying to do all the all the math for that one. Oh, I can imagine. I yes. only ran in the target class because I wanted to go fast. Right. Awesome. It, it's it's a bucket list thing. Um, the first time we ran it, it was in a car that I built in my garage at home. Um, 
pestered the poor guys writing the rule book over and over again, making yeah. sure it was 100% legal and I had everything right because I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, and yeah, we ran it ourselves as a, as a husband-wife team, my, my okay. wife and I. And we did pretty well. Um, the reason I wanted to do it was, was simply because I've always loved rally. You know, I love the idea. It, it's fun pounding out a racetrack and, uh, and playing with those corners and trying to you know get to 100% and even more fun when there's someone else who's in down there trying to go quicker. But there's something about going as fast as possible on a road you've never seen before. Yeah. You know, just that the real cars, real Everything. roads, real fast that yeah. they used to use for the uh, slogan. I just I, I couldn't get that out of my head, so I had to give it a try. Yeah. Now I know you you were just saying that you you built the car in your garage yourself. I know what it is, but how about you tell our listeners a little bit? Well, when I first built it, it was believe it or not a Miata um, that I bought as a hundred dollar tub. Oh, it had really? been taken apart. It had a hundred thousand miles. It had been taken apart by one of my coworkers actually to get a uh, a rotary swap. Okay. And he got the first yeah, part done. 13B or something? Yeah, 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 13B that yeah. was kicking around. And, and he got the first part done, which is take everything off the car. And then circumstances changed and never got to the put everything back on the car stage. So I dragged it, literally dragged it home um, and built it up out of junkyard parts and bits and pieces. And, and Fly Miata basically donated an engine for it as well as helped out with a lot of the junkyard parts. And that was a, um, at the time, it was, you know, high travel suspension. That's what I started to believe in, in suspension mm-hmm. um, with a, a high compression two liter. Okay. And actually, in terms of power and weight and behavior, it was very similar to the current 2016 uh, okay. Miata. Really? And that did all right, but interestingly, it was not as fast as it should have been. Um, Miatas, of course, are great on, on little tight courses and a little bit slower in the straight lines. But the problem is on the rally is it's actually difficult to take advantage of that because you don't have the knowledge of the corners. You can't carry as much speed through the corners. So you've got to be a little bit um, conservative. Right, you know, through that you've got to leave that little bit of reserve because you never know when you come around a corner at ten tenths and yeah. there's gravel and turns into twelve tenths and then oh, it's especially the end of your day. in a race like that, that is a long race. There's yeah. a lot of corners. You can lose the race on every single corner, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the problem is the Miata. You know, I couldn't take advantage of its its speed around the corners as much, um, but it didn't have the blasting power down the straight. So it was it was a lot of fun on some of the more flowing open courses. And when it rained, I was great because you know I could. I could really stretch the car's legs and, and maintain speed through the sweeping stuff, but the little tight cornices, I couldn't, I, the stages, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So when I went back in 2011, um, we went for the big answer and threw a, uh, threw a Chevy V8 in it. You okay. Know, put in a 5.3 at that point, all aluminum, you know, an LS motor, an L33 technically, and uh, that made a big difference. We were running in the open class at that point. We were competing against manufacturers, and uh, and now we had the blasting power to actually be a little bit conservative in the corners and just destroy the straight lines. And the car did really, really well. You know, we were leading the open class for most of the race until the end of the fourth day. We had a factory relay. The factory electrical relay let go when we, we missed oh, the stage. No. Yeah, it took, uh, took about six minutes of penalties and ended four minutes and 59 seconds behind the winner. That's not bad so, at all, though. Yeah, I can hold my head up. You know, we podiumed. We, uh, we raced with the fastest guys. And, yeah. you know, as a racer, I should say, well, I didn't win, so it wasn't good enough. But as far as I'm concerned, I proved that I could run with those guys. And it was just dumb luck. It was one of those relays that had been in the car. This is my own fault. It had been in the car probably since 1994, and Man. it just it just gave up. Uh, so now, as, as I'm sure it's probably a pretty good learning lesson for you, so either carry spare relays or just go ahead and replace them I, all. I had a spare relay with me. Oh, really? But uh, but even then, by the time we'd pulled over the side of the road and got the, the warning triangles out and diagnosed the problem and swapped it out, it wouldn't have made any difference. Yeah. You know, it, Once the failure happened, that was it. The, okay. the lead was gone. Now, is there a certain procedure you have to follow, I guess, when you're doing a repair? Um, you know, They make you pull the triangles out like you absolutely have to? You do, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, and this 
when you when you stop the car, um, you need to put out warning triangles for the other cars because they're they're coming screaming down the road, and you're right. not in their pace notes, you know. Yeah. Um, and you also have to hold up a sign that says you're okay. Okay. Or a sign that says it's got a red cross in it. You know, we need medical assistance, and that is assumed. If they don't see the okay, they assume you need medical assistance. Okay. And there was actually one stage we were on where um, we're screaming down this this one stage, and we're going about 200 kilometers an hour, about 125 miles an hour at this point. It's one of the fastest stages. Huge fun. I was. It, having a great time we came over a crest in the fastest section and there's a subaru parked on the side of the road <sighs> and there's no triangles there's no sign of the crew there's no okay sign nothing like that so of course we had to stop right we stopped we ran back put up the triangles as our competitors go screaming by at 125 which was exciting and we found the crew they were fine but they were hiding in the woods because it was so fast it was so terrifying for them when they didn't they, want to get hit they ran out of gas and they just pulled over <laughs> the side of the road and went to hide in the hide in the woods so <laughs> that was not a high point in rallying history, yeah. I don't think. And there you are uh, trying to be nice, you know. Trying to be nice, but it's like, out. oh, my God, seriously. You're, yeah. First, you ran out of gas on this stage, and secondly, hiding in the woods. But, yeah. Yeah, so you you definitely have to – the first responder for any rally accident is the next competitor. Okay. So anybody who's in a rally has, has got some first aid training. You've got a first aid kit, and you've got to be ready, you know, if you see – if you see a car upside down in a ditch, you're the guy, the first one there to take care of whatever's going on. That happened to us the first year. Oh, really? Came around a corner, and uh, and there was a mini upside down in the ditch. Oh, wow. And so we were the first ones the first ones there, so we had to sort of start taking care of things. Yeah. And you do that because next time it could be you, Yeah. right? It's You, you, you count on your fellow competitors to take care of you if something goes wrong. Yeah. What's that What's that Targa Newfoundland community like? You know, all the, all the people that run it. Um, you know, is it a big party at the end of the day, or...? Does everyone kind of do their own thing? Well, or? it's a week long. You can't you can't party at the end of the day. You party at the end of the yeah. event, but at the end of the day, they're the thirteen fourteen hour days. You know, it's it's, it's worn out. It's brutal. Yeah, and yeah. then you get to work on your car. But rally is. I've seen this in autocross too. Um, it's a real community effort. It's it's the team versus the clock and the road, right. but not against each other. You know, yeah, you're competing against each other, but you don't want to win by having someone else break. Yeah, uh, and so. Teams help each other a lot. You know, if if you need tools, you just go over to someone else. They'll have tools. If you need parts, there was in 2008, the first time we were there, there was a, another Mini that was the most unreliable thing. It was just breaking down constantly. And the other British car teams banded together, and they would not let this thing fail. Um, they were donating engines. Wow. That that one that we found upside down in the ditch, its drivetrain finished the race in this other Mini um, from a different team, you know. Yeah. Uh, Everything that happened, you know, the other all the other British teams would just dive up on it and fix it and get that damn car to the finish line because that's what they were going to do. And he finished. He said it was like it was like playing football, you know, ten yards at a time. But yeah. uh, but he finished, and it was all because of the other teams. And it, it, there's that that sense of community. It's it's really fun when you go back. You're visit. You're seeing your friends again. You know, all the guys that you've raced with. It's, it, the ego's not in the way. The the aggression's not in the way because you can't bump someone else off the track. You know, so it, it's really friendly. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's one of those events that's you know pretty pretty famous at least for people that are listening to the podcast, uh, and it's actually a lot easier to run aside from vacation time and, and budget. You know, it's budget, not yeah. yeah. You know, you don't need to take a, a fully prepped race car and go run. Um, you know, I'd love to run it sometime. So maybe maybe I'll, I'll be able to find a way this year or next year to be able to do it. There's there's something if you've never done it if you've never run a closed stage with a navigator it's it's fantastic. Yeah. You know what it's like when you when you drive a road that you've never seen before and you're kind of playing the road like an instrument, you know, you're yep. just kind of, you're improvising, you're figuring out what, trying, looking at the trees, looking at the power lines, trying to read what's coming over the crest, that kind of thing. That's fun. When you know the road, you can go even faster. But when you've got a navigator, you've got this little voice whispering in your ear the entire time, 
and you're coming up to a crest at 100 miles an hour, the little voice will say, you can go, you can go flat. Yeah. You say, okay, I'll go flat. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see ahead of, uh, ahead of what's going on. You know if there's going to be gravel. You know what the road's going to do. It's, it's the most incredible feeling. It's a rush. Yeah. I've done some some mountain driving, uh, not on closed courses, but um, you know you start getting in this kind of like groove where you don't like time just passes by so quick you don't even think about it. So I, is it ever like that on any of the stages at, with the Target Newfoundland? You know you're you finish you cross the finish line and you're like we just started. And none of the stages were long enough as far as I was concerned. Yeah. My navigator, my wife, not she wasn't quite of the same minds because it was a lot of work for her. Yeah, know, trying to be very precise and a lot of work for me too. But it's a, it's much more. There's more adrenaline, I think, for the driver. Yeah. It's a lot more fun. But yeah, if if you think it's fun driving a mountain road without a navigator, you should try it with a good navigator. It's yeah. just it's it's astounding what it does to to you just your your ability to see over things, to see things that aren't there. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Now, was it like that both times that you ran it, or, or was that more prominent the second time that you ran it than it was the first? You know, that little voice inside your head. It was, it was there right from the beginning. You okay. know, it, as, we, as soon as we clicked as a team, it took a, you know, it took a day or so to sort of figure it out because we were novices at Rally. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first year was just fantastic, and that was the best part about going back was getting that back again. You know, it took us... It took us most of a day to get the rhythm back and to get used to the car because, you know, up here at 5,000 feet, the car doesn't have the same performance that it does at sea level. Right. And, uh, and you know, you can't test the equivalent of a closed, you know, you can take it around the racetrack, but it's not the same as a closed course. And so it took us most of a day to get used to the speed of the car and sort of get back in the rhythm. But, yeah, by the end of that first day, it was all back again. Okay. Was- now, how's the scoring work for, for Target Newfoundland? I know earlier we were talking about uh, the different classes. You know, the the GT class has, uh, what what was it, an 80, 80 kilometer an hour average? No, it depends on the stage. Okay. Um, it's easy to explain the uh, the Grand Touring one, which is basically it's a time-speed distance. Okay. But instead of screwing around with cute little cute little uh, clues like turn left at the barn and then it turns out there's a, a billboard of the barn on it, you know, some sort of stupid stuff like that. No offense to the people who love time speed distance stuff, but uh, uh, not my thing. Um, instead of that, they're very clear. The same directions, the same notes that the that the target guys have. It's just that you are told to do the entire stage at an average speed of, for example, eighty kilometers an hour. Okay. And depending on how difficult the stage is, or how fast it is, you know, if it's a little tight one in in a city, it'll be slower than one of the ones that goes rocketing across the countryside. Right. Um, and the goal is to come in as close as possible to that average speed. And the, the you get penalties for arriving early and you get penalties for arriving late. So it's okay. a precision game. Um, and the fun thing is is that almost every car has the ability to do those speeds. Uh, if you screw up, you're going to need a little more horsepower. And uh, and if you're running a slower car, you've got to use more of it. So I would take a slow car if I was doing it. Um, but every car, almost every car can do it. I think there's a one of the Golf Trek uh, special editions, you know, the yeah. second-gen Golf or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, They've the guy. There's been a, a team has been running those has been has won that event multiple times. Oh, in really? The Grand Touring. Targa's a little different. Um, in that case, there is no penalty for arriving early. Okay. So you're basically given a minimum average speed. Okay. Say if you arrive, if you average 130 kilometers an hour or faster, you get no penalty points. If you're slow, then you get penalty points. So basically, you're given a time. You say you should finish this this stage in five hour or five minutes and 37 seconds. Mm-hmm. If you finish it. In five minutes and 40, you'll get three penalty points, three seconds. Okay. If you finish it faster, you know, if you finish it in five minutes and 12 seconds, that's the same as coming in at 536. You know, it's, huh. once, one, it's, it's, like playing golf. it's like playing golf, whereas everything under par is just under par. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's a little bit odd in that regard, but the stages are, especially in the last few days, are fast enough that nobody finishes 
the stage is clean without okay. penalty points. So at that point, you're just basically fastest guy through wins. Okay. And that's what you're looking for. So do they, they keep uh, accumulated time over the whole, all the, the, no, um, the it, stages? No, it's not, it's not cumulative. It's simply the uh, penalty points for each stage. Okay. So once you're done a stage, you know, if you were 20 seconds faster than you have to be, that doesn't matter. That's the same as being right on time. Okay. And it does not give you any benefit later. Okay. So if you do pick up penalties, there's no way to get them back. You can't, you can't erase them. You're stuck with them. You just have to hope that your competitors pick up a few as well. Yeah. But like I said, near the end, it's to the point where everyone's picking up penalties on, on pretty much every stage. So at that point, it's just first one of the first one of the flag. Okay. So your target car uh, has been, I guess, turned into a, a full-on race car now. Um, I mean, was it, it was fully caged when you were running uh, Targa, right? Yeah, it had to be. Okay. Yeah, it, it's got a For full that cage. Class. And I always use the track to sort of set it up. Um, but... Yeah, with, without an actual target going on, you know, in a given year, um, I need a target to work towards, and so I, it sees a lot of track time. You know, it's it's a, it's a track day car, uh, it's a torture test car for a lot of the flying Miata parts. Um, it's had another engine upgrade since the. Uh, yeah, so there's a, an LS3 in there now. It's got right? an LS3 with a with a an ASA cam, which is basically a 525 horse motor. Okay. Um, yeah, that it sounds great when it's idling. <laughs> it does. Doesn't yeah, it? it sounds amazing. It, it's huge fun. Yeah, and and that. You, the difference between the um, the current LS3 and the old 5.3 is spectacular. You know, my speeds at the end of straights and things like that are just they're dramatically better. So the, yeah. the new engine is is just a beast, and so I use it for you know it's it's what I use to teach myself about suspension and test suspension and and torture test parts. And anytime we get something new that we need to see, you know, how strong is it or how will it do under duress? Well, that's the car gets bolted to. Okay. Awesome. Now, I know you, you said that you have a – there's a cart track out here that you do some testing on. It actually sounds like it's a, a pretty fast cart track. It's got um, some fast sections, yeah. 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 How's uh, – what's the fastest speed that the, the LS3 car will get up to out there? Uh, it's not as fast as you might think. I okay. think it's 75 or 80. Okay. Um, Still on a cart track. That's On uh, a cart track, yeah. There's, there's a sweeper uh, yeah. on the track that's off camber, and your speed to that sweeper is completely limited by grip. Okay. And uh, – you know, a high power car like the Target car can get up to it really quickly and then maintain it, whereas the lower powered, you know, one six Miatas and one eight Miatas are full throttle all the way through trying to get to that point. Yeah. Um, so it's good for developing, you know, suspension setups to see what your actual grip levels are, because you know, the higher your grip, the faster you can go. Yeah. But the car has outgrown the track. It's it's a bit of a caged animal on that track now. Okay. Um, there. Last time I was at a track day with it, the guys were laughing at me because my braking zone, my braking point for turn one, is right where the. Uh, the National Aspen Miata's hit third gear, or third or fourth gear. They, they, they shift gears right where I'm starting to nail the brakes because I'm going so much quicker than they yeah. are. Man, that's funny. So now I know that car has had a couple things um, that have happened to it. Probably the most notable that I know of is the you know a hub failure at turn nine at Laguna Seca. Uh, Mazda Raceway, Laguna Seca. Sorry, yeah, sorry, right. sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was that was a high profile failure. That one, nobody nobody missed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, was, you got it on video, and it pretty much made it all around the internet. It's quite an exciting video because at first you don't know what went wrong. It's right at the apex of turn nine, and all of a sudden there's this bump, and the car just went into a spin immediately. Yeah. And uh, you can see in the video halfway around, all of a sudden you can see my wheel following yeah. me down the <laughs> down the rainy curve, oh, and then it spins around again, and you can see the um, one of the brake rotors rolling down the track yeah. because you know when the hub went that was the only thing holding the wheel yeah, on and all the so it's just this hub rotor yeah. swinging down what, what was going through your head uh i think i was hoping not to roll that was basically <laughs> just when i saw the wheels like oh man yeah <laughs> um the good thing is is the car's history as a rally car actually came in handy because it's got skid protection all over the bottom oh there you go and so when the wheel came off it just landed on the skid plates 
and that saved I lost the exhaust system because I drove over the wheel when it came okay. off and that kind of crunched the muffler but you know it saved my shock it saved my differentials um, my differential shaved all sorts of stuff underneath the car there's the skid marks all over the bottom of it but that's what it's for right yeah yeah, I mean that's that couldn't have happened to a better better prepped car. Yeah. To be honest, like you got it was pretty pretty considering easy on that considering one. how fast we're going and where it happened, it was it was probably the least uh, the the lowest consequence result. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we lost most of our speeds getting around on the skid plates on the pavement before we went off the pavement. Yeah, um, you know, bent a couple of wheels, obviously broke one. Um, yeah, new hub and and the exhaust system it actually came back together pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all in all, you got off pretty pretty easy for something like that. So the the car is a good torture uh, torture device because it it really does stress parts in a way that most Miatas can't, just yeah. because they don't generate the speeds uh, and generate some pretty good lateral forces too. It's you know got got a wing and big splitter and uh, and generates some some legitimate cornering forces with the tires it runs. So so it really does stress things pretty hard. So it's, yeah. it, it's good to justify that way, but it's no fun being the guy who's in the car if something does break if you don't catch it ahead of time. And there's no advance warning for a hub letting go like that. Yeah. Yeah, I know we were talking when I when I first got here about, you know, I kind of had the idea in my head that a, a V8 car would be really hard to drive on track. But you were telling me that actually one that's set up set up well, you know, the chassis can actually handle it assuming that you have everything in place. It it the car's never done anything I haven't asked it to. Yeah. Well, other than drop but, a wheel yeah. and turn nine, <laughs> we'll, we'll ignore that. But yeah, it, it they won't surprise you. You know the uh, the power band is so linear, um, and you've yeah, got what, what gears do you use? You only use like two or three gears. Well, it depends on the track. At yeah. Laguna Seca, I was there one time and I was having some trouble with uh, some of the electronics, and basically it was it was giving me trouble when I shift. So I just put it in fourth gear. I drove all Laguna Seca in fourth gear, you know. <laughs> turn two, that's got the torque. Who cares? You yeah. know, it was it was topping out. It was coming up towards turn seven, coming up to, towards the corkscrew. Yeah, I really should have been in fifth. Uh, coming down the main straight, I should have been in fifth. Um, but I just lifted it off and you know let it let it cruise a little bit. But yeah, it'll do an entire lap of uh, Laguna Seca reasonably quickly uh, in fourth gear. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things you you would expect that something with that has that much power would be kind of a handful coming out of the corners. But, you know, when I when I saw you at, at Mazda's at Mazda Raceway, yeah, I got it right that time, uh, you know, it looked like it was really planted. It's it's completely controllable. You know, if you drive like a meathead, it'll punish you. Yeah. You know, it, it will not suffer fools, but, you know, don't don't slap the throttle open, just roll it open. Um, you know, don't ask for more power than you can deliver, that kind of thing. Uh, coming out of turn two is huge fun because you can just kind of smear the back end around however much you want to with whatever throttle you use. Most of the corners you can do that. Um, yeah, it won't, it won't surprise you. It'll do what you ask it to. And if you ask it to do something stupid, it'll, it'll do something stupid for you. Yeah. Just don't ask it to and you'll be fine. <laughs> now switching gears a little bit, you know, I, I just got back from SEMA, uh, and when I was walking through, I guess one of the, was that Central Hall? Central Hall. Yeah. I was walking through Central Hall on Thursday and walked through the Coney booth and talked to Lee Grimes, who's been on the show before. And lo and behold, there was a Miata there and ND with Coney stickers on it uh, and some 60UL wheels and a bunch of stuff uh, that I'd never seen before, which is kind of funny because, you know, usually I'm all over the Internet. Uh, <laughs> and lo and behold, it had a flying Miata sticker on it. Uh, so you want to tell us about that car a little bit? Yeah. That, I think it was uh, you guys kept that one under wraps pretty well. We did. We, we, we sent out a few teasers ahead of time showing, you know, just like a little quarter panel shot or a yeah. shot of a Coney sticker on the car or something. But... Yeah, that was a car that we unveiled at uh, at SEMA. Uh, we worked with Coney on a number of different projects. Um, you know, all, all all four platforms for the Miata. We're working with them on the ND as well. And they needed a car for the booth, so they asked us to 
to provide something. Okay. And so we took our newest ND. We've got two of them. Um, and set it up with uh, with a set of Coney Ray shocks that they put together for us. Okay. Uh, Eibach gave us some springs to put on there. And um, the the uh, wheels that you mentioned, the, the 6UL wheels, were wrapped in some really nice, BF, some big, fat 245 Are those uh, Rival S's? BFG Rival S's, okay. yeah. Um, so we set it up basically to be an STR autocross car. Right. Uh, so, you know, good springs, good shocks. We put a set of our brakes on it, which knock about uh, 19 pounds off the weight of the car and give a really good pedal. Yeah. Um, you know, less unsprung weight, all the good stuff. Uh, one of our exhaust systems and a set of sway bars. Yeah, he, he's, you started it up earlier, and it sounded really good, actually. Yeah, it's kind of a fun exhaust. It's, it, yeah. It's not the lightest exhaust on the market. You know, it's not a pure race exhaust, yeah. uh, but it's one that we can and we have driven cross-country. You know, we, yeah, uh, that's we, what I was going to say. It sounds like a, a good dual purpose. We give it the toughest test possible. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, the whole car sounds like a good dual-purpose car, the way you have it set up currently. Well, you know, we took a car very much like it, um, different suspension but similar sort of setup, um, down to the Mazda Raceway event uh, this year, which is about a 1,000-mile drive for us, and we sent Brandon down there with his wife. Okay. They drove it down there together, and so with the exhaust that's on there, and it got a thumbs up from his wife, you know, on the droning along on the interstate with the top up. It was quiet. They were comfortable, you know, happy, but when they dropped, dropped the top to have some fun, it it went into fun mode, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, it is it is a car you could legitimately drive all the way across the country to Laguna Seca, um, lap there for a couple of days, turn around, and drive back home again. Yeah. Now, as somebody that you know has a lot of experience with Miatas and works at a place that has a lot of experience with Miatas, what's what's your take on the ND? I'm, I like it a lot. Yeah. It it yeah it uh, it really harkens back to the original roots of the car. You know, it's it's fun to drive. Right. Um, we're not as far advanced on the car as we are on the NAs. It's interesting. My little daily driver is a pretty heavily modified NA, and not heavily modified in terms of it looks like some sort of refugee show car, but in terms of I've been tweaking it for years. Right. And it's always interesting to go back into that as a as a check. You know, how close did Mazda really come? And we've still got a little way to go yeah. um, in terms of the involvement. But, yeah, the ND, it's light. It's responsive. It's got lots of torque, which Miata owners have been asking for. You know, they, they call us up and say, I want more power, but mostly, you know, low-end power. They're, they've always been asking for torque for the last 20 years. Yeah. The fun thing about it is that my personal Miata, um, my daily driver, has a hardtop on it permanently because it's pretty hot here in the summertime. You know, getting out of the sun is kind of nice, and air conditioning is a good thing. And I went through my top-down-all-the-time stage 20 years ago. I've done yeah. that. You know, I've, I've driven across Canada or across Ontario when it was minus 10 Celsius outside with a top-down. <laughs> top I've, 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 I've paid my dues. Yeah. And the funny thing is, uh, when I started taking the ND home and driving it more, I drove with a top-down most of the time. Really? It's just, it's all the things that I was doing when I first got into this whole thing and I first started playing with cars, I'm starting to do again. I'm just taking it for drives because it's fun. And so let Need to go shopping? Let's take the ND. Let's take the Miata. We'll yeah. drop the top and let's go down there. It's fun driving with the top down at night. You know all the all the old convertible stuff, the sports car stuff. Yeah, that kind of got lost over the years. It's back again. So yeah. I'm liking it a lot. Yeah, you know, I was really surprised. I, I hadn't really ridden in one, um, but I was last weekend or last Monday. I was in L.A. and stopped to pick up the Million Mile Lexus from Matt Farah, mm -hmm. and we had to run to the mall to help to get his computer fixed because I was I got there like right before traffic got crazy, so we ran. But he had a, an MX-5 press car, and so we took that. And I was surprised at how big the act the car actually feels when you're in it. You know, it it I mean it, it feels small, but it feels substantial. Um, so it's kind of it feels cozy, I guess. But when you're in it, the hood, you know, it's nice and long. It feels well, you like, can see a lot and, of the hood, can't you? Yeah, and that that's part of I think Moss is trying to make that a visual cue for what's going on. But yeah, you you do see more of a hood, yeah, uh, than you do on some of the others. But yeah, it's just 
it's just easy fun. You know, yeah. it, it, it's entertaining and doesn't come at a price. You know, it, it's I think that's what's so much fun about it. It's easy to throw that top down and put it back up again. The car doesn't beat you up. You know, it's not noisy. It's not loud. It's just uh, yeah, it's just fun to play with. Yeah, I I know what you mean about turkey. about you know having having a convertible and then just kind of being over it all of a sudden. It was the same way when I had my S two thousand. You know, I I loved having a convertible when I first got it, but then as time went on, I was like, uh, you know, I'll put a hard top on it and like never really miss the convertible. But that kind of that kind of interests me now. You know, someone that's been around the cars all the time and around Miatas all the time and has the opportunity to drive with the top down, that it actually made you feel like it was better with the top down or that you enjoyed it. I, you know? I yeah, I just I'm back to that again. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the fun thing. And I got to tell you, on the track, they're a lot of fun and they stick like crazy. They'll hurt your neck if they're really? well set up. Yeah, it's. Uh, I had one at uh, at High Plains Raceway uh, the week before we went to uh, to Mazda Raceway, and man, the amount of lateral grip that thing was generating, and that was just on a set of basically 200 Treadwear street tires, yeah. RE71 R's, and um, with our with our Fox prototype Fox suspension on it, and holy cow, that thing was stiff. <sighs> you know, not not that fast in a straight line, um, come off the corners pretty well with all the torque, but man, you carry a lot of speed through the corners. Yeah, it's all all the, a lot quicker than the original Miatas were. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been pretty impressed by the stats that are coming out as far as speed goes for them. I won't name any numbers because there's a large variance, and I guess it comes down to driver and elevation and even like zero, zero to sixty testing is a, it would actually be an interesting subject for one of your one of your podcasts because yeah. there's, there's a lot more going into it if you talk about you know subtracting rollout and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's a quick little car, surprisingly quick in a straight line. It's one of those cars that just it's faster than it should be. Yeah, and uh, and. It, and it feels like it's quick too, which is something that that I think the first generation cars were really good at. The first two generations is they they felt quick as well as being quick. Right. Um, I don't think the third generation car had quite that same feel of of speed to it. It was very competent. It was quick, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel as playful. Yeah. And uh, and on the track, that's awesome. Uh, but as a street car, it's not necessarily what you're looking for. Yeah. You know the the Miata to me, and I've said it on the show many times before, but it's always it's always felt like it's been greater than the sum of its parts. You know, it's just, you look at it on paper and you're like, oh, that's not going to be that great. And then you drive one and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And you I know, feel like they've continued that trend or they've, they've gone back, like you were saying to that with the ND. It's funny. You know, we were talking about earlier about how the E30, E39 M5 was a car that the engineers got to have their way. The Miata has actually been that way as well. You know, you look at the original Miata and there's no reason why Mazda should have built that car instead of the Ford Capri. Yeah. You know, it, why was it not front wheel drive? Why was it not using parts bin stuff? Even the engine got reworked. You know, it was a, it was essentially a parts bin engine, but they reworked the whole thing. Yeah. New internals, new head, all that kind of thing. There's no reason why they should have put that much effort into a into a cheap and cheery convertible. Yeah. <laughs> but they did. You know, they gave us double wishbone suspension, they gave us a good engine, they gave us a great little gearbox, and they made it tough. And uh yeah, it's, it's always been one of those cars that the, the engineers take pride in. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we've had Tom Matano on the show. I actually got to, to speak with him for about 10 minutes when we were at, at Miata's at Mazda Raceway. And he was telling us about how he kind of sold the story of the Miata as a, a love story. <laughs> um, you know, my, my favorite line is that he said he, he designed the car to where the last thing you did at night was like you open the door to the garage and peek at <laughs> it. A little you peek. Know? Yeah, yeah. So and I think he, he nailed it. And it's, you know... Future designers and stuff have been able to, to hold on to that for the most part, especially with this new car. You and know, he's still driving a blue NA. Yeah. I don't know if he drives it every day. Probably yeah. not. But but it, I see it on a regular basis. You know, he comes out to the shows and things. He's yeah. still he's still got one. Yeah. So which is just which is just great. Yeah. So you know, it's 
it's really funny how small that the community actually really is. You know, from from the outside in, you know, you might think that it's it's hard uh, to be able to converse with people, but. You know, I was able to talk to Tom just like he was a normal, normal person, you know, which he is a normal person. He's he is. Just done, he's just done some great things. He's, he's an enthusiast. Yeah. yeah. And he always has been. He's always been really involved in the community. And what's interesting, you say it seems like a small community, and it, it is when you think about it. I don't think Moz has cracked a million cars yet. Really? It's been a quarter century, and they're, they're, just, they're almost there, like 960 or wow. something. But they're almost there, but I don't think they've built the million car. If they have, it hasn't been long. And, you know, how many Corollas do they make every year? Yeah, <laughs> it, the the Miata, its its impact on the automotive scene has been far beyond its weight. You know, in terms of the the number of actual cars that are out there, there really aren't that many. Yeah, but you know, they're everywhere. You yep. can't go to an autocross without there basically being two thirds of the cars being Miatas or track days. Yeah. It's like the default car to track day, and and you know, there's owner clubs all over the place and big events everywhere. But but yeah, it's just it's really kind of a niche vehicle, but it's had this huge effect. Yeah. I mean, the community is absolutely huge. I, I kind of, in some ways, I like to compare it to the Jeep Wrangler community a little bit, you know? Like, you know, the Jeep guys, they're always, they kind of stick together and they wave to each other and things like that. And with Miatas, it's kind of the same way, too. You know, if you're, if you're at a gas pump or something, you're filling up and someone else, like, you know, comes up with a Miata and they're filling up, too. They end up talking to you. And Yeah, it certainly, it certainly happens, especially with the ND, man. You, you meet a lot of people with that because, yeah. uh, you know, everyone comes up and tells you a story about how they used to own a Miata and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, how many times does that get, uh, I guess, people that don't know that the ND is out? They look at it and they're like, what kind of car is that? You know, that you happen? still get guys who don't even know what the first one is. Really? You know, what kind of car is that? Oh, it's a Miata. It's like, yeah. Miata, who makes that thing? It's, <laughs> it's been, it's been 25 years, Ferrari. guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a quarter century. And I, I'm sure there's there's probably PR guys at Monster who still cry about that, the fact that the car is better known than the, the maker is. But, um, yeah, there's... It, Driving one of the new ones around, you almost feel like a rock star, you know, because yeah. for the first time, we've always had cute cars. You know, they've been cute. They've been friendly. This one's kind of sexy. Yeah. And even if you don't know what a Miata is, you look at it and you go, that's cool looking. Yeah. I like that. It's a really good looking car. I'd love to be able to buy one one day. <laughs> well, I'm so sure you maybe, will. Maybe we'll try and figure out how to how to make that work. Well, 25 or, years from now, they'll all be $1,000. Yeah. Right? Or if Maz is listening, they can send me a press car and drive I, that around. I highly recommend it, Maz. You should do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am on the road a lot. That's for sure. <laughs> But anyways, um, real quick, before we, we sign off, I wanted to touch on, uh, you were saying that you were a crew chief for uh, 949 Racing when they won uh, Thunder Hill, uh, 25 hour. Mm -hmm. um, you want to talk us through that a little bit? Like, what is that experience like? Because I know that there were a couple failures on, not, not I don't think Crusher had any failures, um, but some of the other cars had some issues um, that year. Like, what, what is it like in the pits during a big race like that when something happens? You know, is everyone scrambling around, or how do you guys assign tasks? Man, the real story you want was the first year I worked with, the first year 949 raced in that event was the first year I was with them. Um, they were putting together the team, and, and I just sent Emilio a note saying, hey, I'd love to work with the team if I could. Mm -hmm. um, and so I came on as a mechanic the first year. And we had, I think we called it hell hour at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I forget exactly what happened, but every single one of our cars came in with a problem, one right after the other. You know, one came in needing new uh, new hubs, and then the next one came in right behind it with no wheel. We had one come in with no wheel. Uh, we had one that I think the caliper was off. Um, it was just like this sequence of failures, one after the other, bang, 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 at 1 o'clock in the morning. And it was intense. It was it was just, you know, it was, it was the interesting thing. It was a bunch of guys who didn't necessarily work together. You know, you've talked to Andrew Kidd in the past. He yeah. was there, and Andrew knows his stuff. Yeah. Um, Emilio was working as driver. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't, wasn't wrenching. 
and uh, and I was there and a few of the other guys in the Matic community. A lot of it hasn't hadn't worked together before necessarily on a car, but we all knew what we were doing. So you know, everyone just dive in, and it was uh, it was it's just intense. You know, get this car back together and get it out there. And by the way, it's got to last another. 12 hours yeah you know so whatever you do don't budge you know no half-assed uh no half-assed work um it was a lot calmer the next year in 2012 i think okay. it was everyone kind of like figured out what they were doing and, well and yeah the, the, and... the team had learned some lessons from the first time around yeah. you know some of the some of the problem areas had been addressed um things like wheel hubs were a lot more reliable the second time around um you know the level of preparation emilio's emilio's a really smart guy and and took a lot of lessons from that first time around. Yeah. And uh in 2012 I was working as crew chief. So I was I was more on the chess side of things. You know, I was uh I was up on the wall watching the cars. I started off taking care of two of the cars out of the four that we had and then after we lost one at an engine failure, um I ended up taking over three cars. So I was I was okay. sort of juggling all three cars and just making sure that talking to the drivers, keeping tabs on what was wearing down on the cars, you know, condition of the brakes, condition of the right. tires. Um when they were going to need fuel, that kind of thing. And even the game of, of keeping the fuel, you can only put 10 gallons at a time, but those cars can take considerably more than 10 gallons. Right. Uh, so, you know, do you keep the tank mostly full? Do you keep it, you know, let it come down, keep it, keep it lighter, but then if you want to run a little bit longer, you know. Is that a strategy that you came up with, or was that kind of like a team strategy? Uh, we had a couple of guys goes? We had a couple of guys in the in the motorhome who were watching very carefully what was going on with the other cars. Okay. Um, I was mostly concerned with just making sure that they were coming in when they needed to, dealing around radio problems we had with multiple drivers and multiple headsets. You know, sometimes we had a car that could hear us, but we couldn't hear them. Right. Or or vice versa, um, or no radio at all, and so just dealing with juggling that kind of thing. Yeah. So I wasn't... I wasn't doing the big picture strategy thing. I don't want to take uh, credit for that, but it was there was a lot of decisions and things like we had one of our guys, um, Jeff. Actually, I think we were talking about him earlier. Uh, was moderate. We weren't sure if the brakes were going to last on right. Crusher, and Emilio was driving Crusher. Emilio drove almost all that race. He did a huge Ironman effort on yeah. that thing. I don't think he wanted anyone else to drive it. You know, <laughs> he was taking responsibility. Yeah. Um, and we weren't sure if he was going to make it or not. And so one of the guys, every time it came in for fuel or for tires, um, he checked the thickness of the brake yeah. pads. And that, and was, for that, that was Jeff Preston, It was right? Jeff Preston, yeah. yeah. He was determining exactly how fast it was, it was going down. And he would do this in his head. You know, he's doing all the math. And, of course, we've been up for yeah. a day and a half at this point. We're doing all the, all the math. And, and there was one point it came in for a four-wheel, um, four-tire change. Car's up in the air, and we all sort of pause. Jeff does his measurement and says, can't do it. And so everyone just jumps on the car, tears the brakes apart, changes the rotors, or changes the, change the pads, and then we were able to send Emilio out and say, okay, you've got all the brakes in the world. Yeah. Go nuts. And Emilio just drove the wheels off yeah. after that. What but I love about that whole story just is that it really you know, was... Having to make those decisions, like, okay, we're going to have to go. Just go, go, yeah. go, go. Make it happen. What I really love about that story is it, it was kind of a... A whole community effort, you know, from the Miata community in general. Like, pretty much the best of the best in the Miata community were there making that happen. There were people in from all over the place, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. that's what I love about that story. You know, like, we've we've had Oscar Jackson Jr. on the show before, mm -hmm. um, and I know he was there. Um, yeah, I think Oscar was one of the drivers that year, I think. Yeah, yeah I think uh, somebody was telling me off the air, it wasn't on the show, that uh, they put him in the car and they needed to pick up some spots. And they're just like, all right, man, just go for it. And he just drove <laughs> as hard as he could and picked up some spots. I think he, he was going like two off and four off sometimes, but just pushing as hard as he could to get spots back. Well, you know, it's 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 like the like the track in Newfoundland. You've you've got to bring it home. Yeah, you know, you don't take any risks. You're not not willing to. Uh, you you don't want to take any more risks than you have to. Yeah, because you, one little off, one little bit of damage will make such a difference. 
you know, if it spends five minutes in the pits, that makes up for a lot of, you know, five seconds a lot faster. Yeah. Um, you know, looking back efforts, now on but, that, that whole story, it's, it's just a great story. I, I wish there was more documentation on it. You know, most of the stuff that, you know, I've heard, most of the stuff that I know about it, I've heard either just reading on the forums or, you know, talking to people. But I don't really think was there any like big video stuff or anything for no, it? No, it wasn't documented in that yeah. in that regard. The uh, actually like there, was, there was a little bit. There okay. was there was um, NASA put together. I don't know if it was NASA, but there was a TV show that followed I think four different teams. Yeah, and uh, the nine four nine team was one of them. Okay, yeah, it was there was the team, and then there was a I think there was a team driving an E thirty six maybe. Yeah, the guys um, with the, wheel, the wheel spacer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I do remember that now. And it's on. I think it's on YouTube. Actually, it's okay. pretty available. Okay. Uh, but actually, I've still got all the notes. Oh yeah. From the crew chief, you know what car came in when? What was the condition of this? Yeah. Were the temperatures like? You know, yeah. were the brakes like? When did we change this? When did we change this? Um, should, I think it's got all the yellows stand, and stuff you like that. Scan all those and put them up somewhere. I I, I, I transcribed cool. them, and sent them to Emilio after the yeah. race. Uh, but yeah, it was. It's kind of fun to uh, It'd be really cool, to go like, back into it. Like uh, when Kurt Cobain, you know, Kurt Cobain used to keep a lot of, of notes and everything. And just I think in the late 2000s, um, they put together a book. They scanned all of his stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be really cool to do something like that just for for the motorsports stuff. World, I for, wrote down at three o'clock in the yeah, morning. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Like it, <laughs> they, turned it it, they turned it into a coffee table book, actually. Yeah. So if there was right. some sort of like motorsports coffee table book, maybe that's something Adam and I'll have to work on is, is getting notes as long as there's no proprietary information on them. Uh, you'd have to, yeah, I might have to run it by Emilio to make sure his tire yeah. pressures or something aren't in there. That, yeah. Uh, but yeah, even no, my, I'll my just clipboard. Send it to him. I'll send it to him with a Sharpie and be like, all right, man, here, do your work. <laughs> my, my clipboard that I use for race for all my race notes and stuff, like that's the same one I used at, at the race. And it's still got a sticker along the bottom or a piece of uh, duct tape, orange duct tape that says Crusher 3000 RPM. It's the pit lane speed. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, still, it's still got my notes from the, uh, from the race on there. Cause yeah. I, I love endurance racing, yeah. whether it's rally or whether it's, you know, Le Mans kind of thing. It's my favorite kind of motor racing. And uh, and just to be involved in something like that was, was fantastic. Yeah. Do you have any future plans for anything, um, you know, on the endurance racing side or, or club racing or another Targa or anything? Well, I'm I'm always trying At to put something can, together for the Targa. About. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had a we had a good Targa um, effort going this year. I was okay. actually going to be running one of the Global Cup cars. Okay. Uh, the ND. You know, there were there were two in existence. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, about three weeks before the race, Mazda's uh, lawyers got concerned because oh, of really? uh, some of the the pre production aspects of the car. Okay. Uh, I understand, but uh, they pulled out unfortunately, which is which is a real shame because I think it would have shown the car off really really well. Yeah. You know, knowing what we know now about the car, it would have done so well. Yeah. Um, I'm always kind of looking at another way to go back, but there's nothing nothing active at the moment. It's we don't live close enough to any racetracks to be able to pull that thing off. You know, lived in California, it'd be a different story. Um, yeah, and the Targa itself, it's just such a, it, it's, you know, I'm away from home for a month for yeah. that race. So it's, it's not something you take on lightly. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. I mean, that's a pretty big ordeal. Even just getting there and back, let alone racing is I, probably. I forget how much I spent on diesel fuel yeah. alone, uh, in 2011, just to get the car out there and, <laughs> and then to, you know, run the, cause of course you need support vehicles. So you put a thousand miles on the, on the support truck, just chasing the cars around. Yeah. And I think it was 4,000 miles to get out there. So okay. it's, yeah, it's a, uh. It's a long trip. Yeah. Well, for me, it's really cool to be here and be able to talk to you. Uh, you know, I when I was in, in college, my roommate actually had a Miata and had flying Miata catalogs come to our apartment all the time. <laughs> Good. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just really, really strange to me how I've gone from, you know, seeing you guys and, like, pouring through the catalog and, like, dreaming about a build to actually being able to be here and, and have you on the show. So hey, really, my pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. Where, where can people find out more about Flying Miata and about yourself? And oh, Believe it or not, flyingmiata.com. Oh, wow. Uh, no, no G, just F-L-Y-I-N-M-I-A-T-A. <laughs> um, 
my own personal website is slowcarfast. Okay. dot com. Yeah, I saw uh, the stickers out on on the race car. Yeah, well, I'm the biggest sponsor of that race car, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't get updated a whole lot these days, but um, yeah, slowcarfast.com is a, is sort of where I've got a lot of my my personal stuff and the target cars. Okay. Entries are in there, and the and the story of the V8 build for the MG and stuff like that. Is all they're all stashed there. Even some of the old Land Rover adventures when I first built that. Okay. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time, uh, and for any of our listeners listening, uh, I'm actually going to be posting some stuff on tracktune.com uh, for you know some photos of the shop and, and everything else and some of the features on some of the cars that we, we actually pulled the cars out and we were able to take some pictures. So yeah, got some real good. nice pictures. Yeah, so uh, make sure you guys head over there and check that out. So anything else? Uh, not, not a whole lot. Okay, awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right.